Well, my wife is a very, as you know, very generous, giving person. She came back from Atlanta and brought me this upper respiratory infection. (laughs) So don't say anything to her. I've been expressing my gratitude all week. Uh, Anyway, that's what you're hearing. But I feel fine. All is well. Um, So we're talking about the Trinity, which it turns out, it's not illegal to do it. Like you can actually talk about God for a sustained way. And to do so in the climate that we're in is actually something of a subversive action. It's actually a political action. Because it desacralizes and relativizes everything else. So that's what we're about here in this series on God. We've been on this for a long time. We've been on the Trinity for a while. But among other things, it has this desacralizing function. Last week, we looked at how the Trinity is revealed in the Old Testament. Remember the, the aphorism from Augustine? We cited the new, he said, the new is in the old concealed. The Trinitarian reality is really there, but it's in in shadowy form, right? It's embryonically there. And we saw last week that there's real differentiation in God. God's unity, even in the Old Testament scripture, is depicted as complex, mysterious, wild. This morning, we come to the second half of Augustine's famous aphorism, the old is in the new revealed. The old is in the new revealed. Right? The, in the New Testament, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ cracks open. That's the language I like to use. It kind of cracks open the mystery of the Trinity for us. Now, it's commonplace here. You're all Trinitarians, I presume. Um, but the Trinity has always had its detractors. More than you would think. I've been doing some historical reading about this, and it's really shocking how many there have been. Um, Even in the second, third, fourth, fifth centuries, at the time of the Reformation, lots and lots of anti-Trinitarians. The Trinity has been thought to be a later, usually a fourth century, kind of philosophical imposition on the simpler New Testament picture of God. Can't I just have me and Jesus? I mean, can't we just make this simple? Right, on this view, which is common, by the way, on this view, the Council of Nicaea, which is a council in 325 A.D., Nicaea would be in modern Turkey. The Council of Nicaea is the enshrining of an error. Right, we confess the Nicene Creed here regularly, but there are many people who view the Nicene Creed as a misstep. It runs afoul, many have said, of the biblical data, which the opponents of Trinitarianism definitely think is on their side. And there's always been a steady stream of anti-Trinitarians from the ancient Arians to modern Jehovah's Witnesses, modern Unitarians, and in many ways to the average Christian walking around, as we'll see later. And so these various groups insist, again, not without their texts, they insist that Scripture can 
And Scripture must be interpreted as teaching that the Son is less than or subordinate to the Father. The Trinity, they say, is is thought to borrow too heavily from non-biblical categories like this, like person and substance and nature and essence and being and the like. That's not the biblical language. All of a sudden, you get to Nicaea and the Nicene Creed, and you've got essences and beings and substances. And the opponents, it's the opponents who are often quick to point out, we just want to stick with the biblical language. We just want to stick with the biblical language. And those are not biblical terms. That seems reasonable enough. Do you realize that heretics are always biblicists? They, they, they fail to understand that texts have to be weighed, not counted. Like you have to, texts have to be architected, not stacked. We have two texts, maybe, maybe three, that say God is an immaterial spirit. We probably have 475 texts that ascribe physical body parts to God. These texts are more important than that stack. But you get that architecture, you just say, well, I've got more texts on my side. Texts have to be weighed. I had a professor who used to say this. Texts have to be weighed, not counted. And weighing them is an art. And heretics are very bad at it. You tell someone that God's a spirit, and he sits there for the next seven and a half hours citing the 500 biblical texts that say God has body parts. He can count. He can't weigh. So the heretics are biblicists. And of course, there were and there are Jewish and Muslim scholars, not to mention atheists, who contend that the doctrine of the Trinity is just contradictory, it's irrational, it's unintelligible. I remember I was a boy when, or a young man anyway, when Lou Alcindor converted to Islam and changed his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Now, it's a vague, fuzzy memory for me, but I remember them interviewing him, and I remember him saying... And I believe he said this, I didn't, I didn't check, that the, the doctrine of the Trinity was a real stumbling block in Christianity. Like, why not Christianity? Why Islam? The Trinity. It's unintelligible. Now, we've already laid the groundwork of a response to this in here. Like last week, we saw the doctrine is rooted in the ancient Hebrew soil and scriptures of Israel. But today, from the New Testament... What I'd like to demonstrate, and, we're, and this is, we're not going to do anything too ambitious here this morning, so let not your heart be troubled. Right? What I'd like to demonstrate is that the classical doctrine defined at Nicaea in 325 is, in fact, the teaching of God's word. Right? It's not a, la- a later imposition. And while it is a mystery, a grand one, it's not unintelligible. It is true, right? It's true that... Later, this terminology developed. That's not the exact words you find in the New Testament. But when the church does that, it's not trying to displace the biblical language or replace it. It's trying to illuminate the varied language of Scripture. Heretics can affirm Scripture. And so the church had to find ways of saying, okay, but we take Scripture to mean this in this sense. And so we have to affirm this term to guard the mystery of Scripture. That's what's going on with this terminology. So we are not, we are not, 
like contrary to many anti-Trinitarians, we're not bound only to the words of Scripture. If we were, then preaching would be impossible. Right? All you could do is read. We are bound inevitably to use other words to unfold and to clarify Scripture. And so we'll do this under three headings. One God, three persons, and relations. One God, three persons, and relations. So, first, one God. The New Testament, every bit as much as the Old, reaffirms that God is one. At no point, at no point, does it countenance the idea that there might be more than one God. And affirming this often comes right in the context where there's some, clearly some kind of pluralness, some sort of plurality, some sort of recognition of others in God. So, for example, the, the famous baptismal text, which was our gospel text this morning from Matthew 28, says this, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, what's important to see here is that it's the name singular. Right? Not the names, plural, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's name is God's character. It's his, his godness. And whatever one wants to say about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they don't give God three names. They don't give God three beings. The name of God is one and singular and unique. The Old Testament name, the personal name of God, the God of the covenant, is Yahweh. And Matthew here is indirectly alluding to that name. So even here, where we, where we look at this text and we think, oh, there's three persons. There is one God. There's one name. Or think, think of what Paul does in our, in our text from 1 Corinthians 8. He says, there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord I mean, that seems problematic, right? You just asserted, look, there's only one God for us. And that God is the Father. And there's also this one Lord, Jesus Christ. So you can see the tension. But Paul is affirming God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in a context where he's explicitly telling us there's only one God. He's echoing the famous Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And if you go back to the very beginning, second or third or fourth week of this whole series... There's a sermon on the unity of God. And we, by that unity, we mean a strong unity. God is utterly uncomposed of parts. The unity of God is strong. So for us, even though we speak of the Father and the Lord Jesus, for us too, there's but one God. Or the Ephesians 4 text, which was also read this morning. You have a mention there of the Spirit and the Lord and the Father, right? There's one Spirit, one Lord, one Father. And yet it's clear that Paul's saying there's only one God. So we see this assertion of the unity, the singularity, the uniqueness, the oneness of God in other New Testament contexts as well. But we can kind of get to the bottom line here. James in his epistle says this, Even the demons believe that God is one. 
So nobody is doctrinally confused about this, even in hell. They're correct in hell on the unity of God. So it's important to say this, right? The New Testament, though it's written in Greek, though it is written by Jews about a Jewish Messiah, and it's fully in accord with the Hebrew Scriptures. (coughs) And so what do we find? We find that the New Testament unequivocally asserts the same monotheism which is ferociously upheld by the law and the prophets. And thus our catechisms follow scripture in both testaments. You've probably done this with your children, right? Our catechisms ask this question, are there more gods than one? And the answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. That's a real important catechism question. That's the one God. I don't think there's any controversy about it. Secondly, the three persons. And here's where Christianity gets a little more difficult, a little more complicated. Um, So the New Testament reveals that there's this rich plurality in God. Now, there's lots of ways to show this. Our larger catechism, question 11, says this. (laughs) See, it's asking the question we're asking. How does it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? How do we know that? How does that appear? And here's the answer. The Scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father, ascribing unto them such names, attributes, works, worship, as are proper to God only. You get that? That's a good little thing to remember. It's a handy thing. How do I know the Son and the Spirit are God? Four things. Names, attributes, works, worship. They get the same names. They are ascribed the same attributes. They do the same works. They receive the same worship as God. It would not be hard to show that the names and the attributes and the works and the worship given to God are given to the Son and also to the Spirit in the New Testament. We've already seen this in 1 Corinthians 8, where for us there's one God, the Father, from whom there are all, are all things, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Right? This, think of John's prologue to his gospel, John chapter 1. We're explicitly told there that the word was God through whom all things were made. So the New Testament regularly places Jesus, now think about how radical a move this is, Jesus and the Father on one side, and all created things on the other side of the boundary. That, by the way, is the supreme argument for the deity of Christ. The supreme argument is that he has the prerogatives of creating with Yahweh, which, of course, forces his opponents into a corner, right? He's either blaspheming or he's God. With respect to the Spirit... We can just briefly note that according to Acts 5, to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. That the Spirit can be grieved. That Jesus says the Spirit can be blasphemed. So you have this line of evidence, right? Names, attributes, works, worship. But I want to focus on a second line of evidence. Just call it triads. Patterns of threes. Which appear in profoundly important contexts. Let me just mention a couple of them. <clears throat> when G- and this is at the very outset of Jesus' public ministry. 
He set apart for public ministry at his baptism. The Father speaks, the Spirit descends, the Son is baptized. Right here, clearly there are three. Call them actors, call them participants. They would later be called persons. But there are three agents at work in unity as one, crucially at the opening and the very unveiling of Jesus to Israel. Right? You get the same thing at his transfiguration, where his coming glory is unveiled. The Spirit is associated with the hovering, bright, overshadowing cloud. The Father speaks, and the Son is irradiated with the divine glory. And if you move out into the early church, I've already spoken of the baptismal text from Matthew 28. Right? Clearly there, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are, in some sense... Excuse me, personal names, designations. But here's the mystery, right? They're designations within the one God, the one name of God. So I want to take just a minute to highlight the importance of this baptismal text. A couple of things to say about the text. Again, this is the Matthew 28 text, the gospel lesson. First thing about the text, it's early. Meaning it's, it's written early, it's Deep in the middle, it's in the middle of the first century somewhere. We're not scrounging around in the second century or in the fourth century councils to fabricate a doctrine of the Trinity. This is something that the church did instinctively without sorting any of this out, without understanding it deeply, and they did it early. This is not even a a question of something on the fringes of the church's life. This is about baptizing people and making disciples. <clears throat> it goes to the heart of the church's witness in the world. The church, Matthew's gospel testifies, was Trinitarian in practice from the beginning. Right, there's an old joke about a... Well, you can make the joke about whoever you want. I usually tell the joke about a philosopher... And the joke is that a philosopher or someone who, when he finds out something works in practice, wonders if it works in theory. Well, the church was Trinitarian in practice. Long before it was Trinitarian in theory, it was just doing the thing. Baptizing. It was Trinitarian on the ground, and then later it developed, you know, some clarity and some guardrails and some boundaries for how to speak and teach about the triune God? You know, just as an aside here, all of this stuff, if you're thinking, oh, this, this stuff is all too complicated, and all the church is trying to do, and all I'm trying to do here in this whole series is get you to realize there's a kind of box that the, the holy Catholic and apostolic church has created uh, on this question of God and Christ. Right? And... The, basically, they're saying, look, you don't, have, you don't have to be an intellectual. You don't have to be a philosopher. You don't have to be a theologian. Nobody has to be genius. There's no experts on the topic anyway. None. All you have to do is stay in the box. Right? And the box, the boundaries of the box could be defined in four or five propositions. That's it. Just stay there. Don't wander out here. This is where the heretics are. Just stay in the box. That's all the church has been trying to do. Right? So, so we developed this. It's true. But we see here that this was something natural, uncontrived, organic. <coughs> right? So it's there from the beginning. The church is bearing witness to it. And as I said, look, it'd be a lot easier. It'd be a lot easier for Christianity to explain itself to the world if it didn't embrace this doctrine. 
But it's not just discipling. It's not just baptizing which are stamped this way. It turns out, if you look through the New Testament, everything bears a Trinitarian stamp. The Ephesians 4 text, which we read, is about walking in humility and gentleness in a manner worthy of our calling. It's in that context that we're told there's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father and all. So this, this, the threefold structure is imprinted on the whole life of the church, on its unity and its charity. And thus the church receives the triadic benediction of God in the following words from 2 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So these key triadic texts, but again, as I said last week, we're not just looking for patterns of three, right? What we are doing here can and finally does rest on a more basic kind of discernment. So I'm backing away, right? We started with names, attributes, worship, work. We went to these three patterns, but I want to talk about a way of reading the big contours of the New Testament, which allows us to see the structure of things, it's like you know, taking a picture from a high vantage point, right? not losing the forest for the trees. And it's this, namely, the whole warp and woof of the New Testament simply is the Father revealing the Son in the Spirit. <coughs> so we're not hunting and pecking around for proof text necessarily. The whole New Testament is the Son and the Spirit showing us and bringing us to the Father. The interior life of God is the processions in God's own being become missions in the world. And once one grasps this, and you could grasp this, by the way, by just a careful reading of the upper room discourse in John's gospel. That's all it would take to grasp this. Once one grasps this, then the proof text for the Trinity basically become the whole New Testament. Or to put this a little differently, the church is embraced by the Trinity in a certain sense, against her will. No one sat around. No one consulted the early Christians. The Father just sent the Son and the Spirit. The church is embraced by the Trinity before she embraces the Trinity. This is real important to see. The church is embraced by the Trinity before she ever embraces the Trinity, and so are you. So, for example, take the grand, complex opening sentence of Ephesians 1. Verses 3 through 14, one of the most spectacular sentences ever written. And there you see painted in these broad strokes the glory of God's grace, which it turns out has a threefold profile. The Father who chooses and predestines, the Son who redeems and forgives, and the Spirit who seals and guarantees your inheritance. So whether it's shared names, attributes, works, worship, whether it's triadic texts, whether it's broad triadic patterns, the one God is differentiated into three distinct agents. And this by the witness of the scriptures, not by the later contortions of the church. that, That brings us to the last point, relations. The third point. You might think here, rightfully, you might think, Well, we've established the one God and the three persons. What's left to do? 
Well, there's a danger that lies right here, and it's instinctive in us. It has to almost be bred out, right? Just what do we mean when we call these three, Father, Son, and Spirit, persons? If we think they're basically persons the way we are persons, we will err. And this is a common kind of cognitive idolatry. Like, think about it this way. For us, three human persons, you know, Joe and Jill and Jane, three persons, if we stand them up here, and I ask how many human beings are there, you would say three. Three persons means three human beings for us. They share a generic thing called human nature, but they don't share a numerical unity. God is numerically one in nature. And that means that unlike us, for God, three persons means one divine being. (coughs) We have no analogies to this. As as I said before, it's kind of like three persons sharing the exact same soul. There's no creaturely analogy here. For God, three persons means one divine being. And so clearly here, clearly, The word person cannot simply be transferred from your experience up to God as if he's just a person writ large without idolatry happening. And this idolatry abounds. Sadly to say, it abounds. Where we think of the Trinity at all, we tend to think of it as a council of persons, a confederation, negotiating and planning together. Splitting the work up. The father tells the son, you do this part, I'll do that part. Like three people sitting down and then executing it. That's the way we naturally think. But you know what? That's deeply corrupt. Because God is not three beings. In fact, you know what it is? It's tritheism. It's tritheism. Most Christians are tritheists. God is three persons in in interior to a single being. God, so here's some cash value for this. God does not have three wills. That's a great diagnostic question to ask somebody about the Trinity. How many wills are there in the Trinity? If they say three, they're, they're not in the box. <laughs> Again, you don't, have to, you don't have to know that. Just get back in the box. God does not have three wills, but we instinctively think he must because we think Father, Son, and Spirit are persons. They're persons just like us. We have wills. They have wills. They must have three distinct wills. Right? Nobody in the history of Catholic or Reformed Christianity holds that position. It's heretical. It means there are three natures, which means there are three beings, which means there are three gods. So as long as you don't mind carrying around cognitive idolatry for the whole span of your Christian life, you can go ahead and keep thinking that God has three wills, but he does not have three wills. And once you realize this, you realize there's going to have to be a repentant restructuring of our very reason to think right about this God. I wish it were otherwise, but it isn't. How many intelligences, how many many centers of intelligence are there in God? There's only one. God has only one power. He does not have three of any attribute that we've looked at earlier in this series. There are not three glories. There are not three holinesses. There are not three wisdoms. And the reason this is strange to us is because it is strange. But the price to be paid for not being right here is to be a functional tritheist. So all of this raises the question, if the persons in God do not result in division, they don't, somehow don't divide the essence, 
How are the persons even distinguishable from each other? Well, here's the answer. The persons are in the Trinity are distinguished by their mutual relations. That's it. Scripture repeatedly asserts this. The Father is the Father of the Son. It's because there's a Son that there's a Father. It's because there's a Father there's a Son. The relationship is, in a certain sense, the person. The Son is the Son of the Father. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. These are called, in the history of the church, relations of origin. The Father is from no one. The Son is from the Father. The Spirit is from the Father and the Son. And these relationships of origin mean we can speak of each member of the Godhead as having a special personal property. The Father has a unique property of paternity. He begets the Son. The Son has a unique property of filiation. He's begotten by the Father. The Spirit has the unique personal property of spiration. He's breathed forth by the Father and the Son. Primally, from eternity, the one God just is these persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person possesses the whole divine essence and a unique personal property. So, or here's another way to put it. This is the hardest part, I know. So when, you're, when we're done, all you have to do is stay in the box. That's all you have to do. But if you, you can think of the Father as a mode of the divine essence or being. And the Son is another mode of the divine essence or being. And the Spirit is the third mode of the divine essence or being. There's only one essence or being. The persons are that essence or being in a particular mode, defined by a particular personal property. That's the most highfalutin Trinitarian theology we're going to do in here. But that's the way to think of it. And, and you'll realize, oh, I've just been thinking of three of them up there sitting around talking and figuring stuff out and, and doing stuff and sending me down grace. I'm like, that's just not going to do. It's just not going to do. Um, so these persons are something like a human person, but they're radically unlike a human person. This is the rich and the deeply relational culmination of what was veiled in the Old Testament. As I've said before, there is no religion that has any doctrine of God, anything like this. And when you get into the higher echelons of this stuff, it's as hard as anything. But it's not hard to stay in the box. It's not hard to get a few distinctions down, right? You know, I was shopping, believe it or not, yesterday. Cheryl sent me out for milk, which is a big mistake on her part. Because I don't know if you guys know, but there's like a lot of milk choices out there. Like the milk containers, the milk part of the store is just enormous. It's bewildering. And she wants some kind of oat milk. And, she, and, then, and then it has to be like grass-fed. And... and it, so I'm on the fo- so of course I'm on the phone with her. I'm like, well, there's a light, there's a light blue one, and there's a dark blue one, and there, and there's one that says full fat, and there's one that says DH3 omega oils, and and this one is that. And this and is there a difference between pasture fed and grass fed? Oh yeah, they're not the same. She tells me. I'm like, all right, well I didn't know that, and, but you know what it made me realize? Sophisticated American shoppers they can make lots of distinctions. Just to get their milk. 
right? We're, it's not like the distinction. Then you say, okay, I'd like to talk about the distinctions between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And American Christians are like, that's too hard. I can make 57 distinctions to pick the right milk out. But you want to talk about these distinctions? People get, their brain goes numb. It's like, ah, oh, it's just... Come on, you do more work than this when you go to Walmart. This is not that hard. So anyway, the persons are radically unlike human persons. And this is the mystery of the Trinity. It's more to be adored than understood. It is. It is more to be adored. It's more to be reverenced than dissected. We are not the lords of it. But we must say what Scripture says, and I've tried to do that. This is, believe it or not, what we've done in here to this point. This is the low-hanging fruit. But there's nothing tame about it. There's nothing manageable about it. There's nothing simple. And as I said, there are no experts here. There are to be just worshipers. But thinking on this thick and mysterious God under the guidance of Scripture is preparation for the only task of eternity, which is, as I said before, is Trinitarian meditation. And this is the anecdote for our current cognitive idolatry. This helps get order and proportion right. This is your God. This is the Holy Trinity, ineffable yet revealed, dwelling in unapproachable light yet showing you his face in Jesus Christ through the Spirit. Blessed be his glorious name. Amen.